Good day. This is Michael Muth of Going Global International Interviews. Uh, today we're speaking with Jim Bergamini, President and CEO of Ditan Labs. Uh, to learn more about them, you can go to daitanlabs.com. Uh, we're speaking with Jim on part two of our interview on Global Telecom, uh, today focused on working with Brazilian workers. For edited transcripts of this interview, you can find them at intlalliances.com and midwestbusiness.com. I guess we've talked about Cantinas as much as we can. Um, I've got to believe people are curious to learn about the quality of the workforce there. How do you qualify the technical people that you hire in Brazil? Um, as I said, my, my partner is Brazilian, mm-hmm. and our other partners are Brazilian, so we born and raised down there. My partner specifically has been working and basically founding companies for the last 20 years in technology. Mm-hmm. So we we have access to many, many people who meet in the, in the campaigns area mm-hmm. where, number one, we, we know many of them from previous, like Augusto's previous capacity in terms of being president of one company, et cetera. In other words, professors placing people at the university. Well, we have okay. So I'm talking about the actual engineers, designers, architects, the people that we'd be bringing on. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we know these people like like there are ten. They may be working for company X, Y, and D, and as we bring you contracts, on, we bring these people. They're actually knocking on the door. Um, we we have a database. We have a we have a, a, a headhunter mm-hmm. where we're considering giving one percent equity. Because people are business, and good people are business. Mm-hmm. This headline has a database of about 47,000 people. Whether they're, <laughs> whether they're uh, newly minted PhDs or MSDEs from the universities, or they've been working two or three years for company X, or 10 years for company Y, we know where they're at, we know where they're still there, and we have in fact built this incredible database that, in fact, when we share it with some of our customers, they've asked us if they could assess intellectual property that we've had to the point where they wanted to, to use the, the, the algorithms and everything that's done. Well, the point is, is we go through a rigorous interviewing uh, uh, process, but we already had a, a, a large database of people who've known over the years, as well as a headhunter that, that may be an equity owner of their company. I don't know if that specifically gets to your question, but. Um, well, I, I guess alternatively, though, um, you've mentioned that Brazil graduates many PhDs in, I believe, electrical engineering and a couple of other. How do we know that the quality of those PhD programs equals those uh, of Stanford, MIT? Yeah, I suppose. Uh, you know, I guess we don't. Mm-hmm. Perfectly honest you. you know, I just how pragmatic. Yeah, yeah. What type of metrics do you have that say this, this person with a PhD in, in uh, optics is better than that person in optics? Uh, um, you really, you really don't. I mean, you can say the same thing with respect to one university in the U.S. versus another university in the U.S. Uh, a PhD is a PhD. However, at the end of the day, from my point of view, at the end of the day, it's all about not just the person's ability, you know, the person's intellect and you know, how smart they are, but the leadership team having done work for having owned and operated companies, being entrepreneurial, work for a company like Bell Labs. I believe it really is obviously the people, but it's 
that the leadership team that brings those people forward. And that's the way I think what makes makes the person that's not just that you know they have a PhD or owner of a PhD. We all know very brilliant people with no education running running large corporations. Yeah. Well, well he actually could be one. I couldn't even have to say no education because you know he's an example of what he doesn't have I don't think he ever got an undergraduate degree. And I guess just to to make you aware of a couple of my different perspectives, working for Canada here, part of what we could put forth is there were comparative studies within North America showing that computer engineering graduates and electrical engineering graduates from Canada were proportionately, um, you know, as good or better than a lot of U.S. universities, in which we could say seven out of the top 22 electrical engineering programs came from Canada. Right. So that was, you know, a quantifiable kind of comparison. Alternatively, having lived and worked in Europe and Germany specifically, I think proportionately there are many more PhDs and leadership positions in Germany and Europe than there are here. Sure. However, are those PhD programs any more stringent than a lot of the top right. schools here? I'm not sure that they are. And so uh, there are differences in the quality and, and numbers and proportions of PhDs in different countries. Yeah. And so is it a plus? Yes, it is. How much of a plus is it? It's difficult to quantify. I mean, just because you pump out 2,700 PhDs a year doesn't make you a, a more intelligent society. Um, you know, I, I will say that just in general, these, these People are working in many cases for multinationals, and um, they're being coached and, and you know, the leadership teams are by some of the best and the brightest. Uh, um, so you combine that with good education and, and sure. great passion and spirit of the Brazilians have, you have pretty good resources. Okay. Um, and how are your Brazilian engineers compensated? Okay. Um, just to put some metrics on um, mm -hmm. a Brazilian, a good Brazilian engineer that may have uh, you know, a couple years of experience making about maybe 40% of what uh, a U.S. engineer would make. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and that 40%, they would live rather well. Obviously, Depending upon the scope of work and the program that you took on, I mean, certain certain programs like if we were doing optical projects, would you know, short, you know, narrow that gap a little bit. But for all intents and purposes, uh, for every uh, one engineer uh, that you hire in the U.S., on average, you get about two and a half. Okay. And are they typically compensated salaries, stock options, um, time and materials? We are not a tiny material shop by, by any stretch of the imagination. These people are on our payroll. Mm -hmm. uh, the Brazil pays, they call, they call payroll, actually, uh, every month is considered a salary. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it really confused me um, when they would say, when they would say, oh, they're selling, they get paid 13 salaries. The reality is that they get paid once a month, 13 months a year. That, that last month is like a little perk, a little bonus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, and what it's we kind of European. I think a lot of European. Absolutely. 
And also what we do is, in fact, one of our employees who's a project manager for uh, one of the reasons we'd like to practice working at is doing such an outstanding job to promote the, the kind of spirit that you want in your company. We're extending him uh, in that company. Very, very small. Mm -hmm. Very small. But the point is, is you know, we're not we're not big believers in stock assets. We know how those things are. Mm -hmm. You know, we're we're a you know privately held company, but for a company that is trying to bring in best of breed people and we're compensate those people well, and, and we're going to allow them to have an equity stake in the business should they be a shining star long term business. So if we can breed that type of environment, we'll be able to take that and, and transfer that to our customers in the U.S. And the world. Mm -hmm. Okay. On your website, you said part of what DICAN does is close the reality gap. Uh, How do you do that? That's what do you great, mean by that? That's a great, uh, a great term that uh, actually a, a friend of mine who's a former uh, CEO and president of the company that we have since sold in Naperville shared that with me. And uh, we basically incorporated that into our, into our marketing. The reality gap is the difference between the world the difference between what you, the customer, plan and forecast. Uh, if you're a CTO or you're running a complete engineering shop or you're, you're the chief strategist for a company, mm -hmm. you, you make forecasts and you mm -hmm. put those forecasts in a plan on record. Mm -hmm. And all the brightest minds in the company think that that's what's going to happen. That's point A. Point B is the world the way it really is. The difference between point A and point B, all your planning and forecasting and the world the way it really is, is the reality gap. And the reality <laughs> gap, the reality gap, and, and really it comes, it's it, it emanated from the, the, the idea behind managing supply chain levels. You do all this wonderful forecasting, but you know, quote unquote happens. Okay? Stop it out. Yeah. Stop it so out. So success is not defined by how well you forecast, mm -hmm. success is defined by how fast you can close in on the reality gap. So things change in this world above and beyond what you plan. Like in telecommunications, customers want accelerated deadlines. Customers want features, different features. Or if they say they want this feature and this capability, two weeks from now they change their mind. Standards change in the environment whether they're CCICT standards, ANSI, you know, whatever it happens, these things change in the month. And then, of course, the unknown happens. Things happen. You have to be nimble. You have to have bench strength, the bench strength that we can provide. You have to be, you know, you have to be quick and you have to be able to execute. That is what we're there to provide. It's not just all the upfront planning and, you know, and ultimately executing. It's the ability for us to be injected into a company's R&D cycle, the product management cycle, and things like that, to help them uh, close the reality the difference between what they thought was going to happen and what really happened. FYI, I don't know if you've ever heard Bob Jarrett speak. He's a local angel entrepreneur. He made the point he looked at hundreds of business plans and at one point went back and took a look at all of the hockey stick forecasters, and I don't think one of them matched up with the reality of what happened versus the forecast. So, I know what you're saying. Really, is well-planned. Our 401k plans and our financial portfolios and best guys on Wall Street, you know, I think they understand everything. Then there's the world where it really is. Enough said. 
So we, we try to get in there and, and, and help companies react to it. And I guess getting back to how you work, my impression is a lot of R&D organizations get input from their customers, their sales force, other customer information sources. If you're outsourcing your R&D to someone like Dicam, how do you emphasize and encourage that kind of communication? Or is there a loss if you don't have that? No, the special makes us sort of unique and special. We work in the U.S. with our partner team and a number of folks on our team. We work in the U.S. We live in the U.S. We understand service providers in the U.S. and some cases even in Europe. So um, what we bring to the table is not just coders and designers and architects, but uh, a mentality and mindset that understands what service providers in the U.S. and Europe need to make money. It's all about making money. Mm -hmm. um, we try to inject that that thinking. I mean, the reality is, just because we're solving the border in Brazil, we are not insulated by any stretch of the imagination from what what is needed in the U.S. Um, of course, we're all all the technology, journals and things like that, but for all kinds of purposes, you know, we've cut our teeth out of it. That truly doesn't make that you need. We're not we're only Brazilian because we're our legal entity in Brazil. But in many cases we're Brazilian American because we we work for companies like Bell Labs and others and, and we know what's needed to be successful. So we try to complement the R and D teams. Are we right all the time? No, but but I have a lot of customers. But Delhi doesn't bring you the table we can close you know, close the, we, we can be a lightning rod in a lot of the planning. I'm going to Austin next week for a two-day meeting with a company, a large company. They invited me in the show and two days at an off-site strategy meeting as part of their R&D um, uh, segment of this two-day off-site meeting. Primarily because they want our thinking. Now, they don't necessarily want my thinking. They want Russo's thinking. I mean, he's good at it. So we're not just taking requirement documents and doing the work. We're trying to articulate what we think is around the corner and, and better ways to make cost reductions and to improve density on, on, on a circuit path and blade or something like that. Hopefully that's getting the question. Sure. Yeah. Um, what incentives do Brazil, Campinas, and so on offer to do R&D there? Okay. First of all, we're a services company, so we don't pay a lot of taxes that company that would be selling products. Okay. And there are, in fact, a lot of taxes in Brazil. I'll just leave it at that. Mm -hmm. But a lot of a lot of taxes that we would otherwise pay, we're not paying because we're a service-oriented company. Number one, um, number two, and that makes us even more so competitive, bring the cost pressure. Number two, um, the informatics law, which is really PPB. Um, PPB PPB law is um, a law that. Creates incentives to do. What does PPB stand for? Um, PPB. Help me out here. Because I found informatics on it, but I didn't basically PPB. It's basic productive process. P B P B. There's a split of PPB. You know how it is. Language, thank you. Language. It's a language. Informatics law basically says in order to create incentives for companies to do more R&D, to create more R&D, more cross-border transactions, we will give you basically X percent of your top line, say 4% of your revenue. If you make a dollar, 
and revenue. We'll give you four cents, but you have to plow that four cents into development. Mm -hmm. And it has to be development in Brazil. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are that the number four cents? Well, well that, that vary or it varies depending upon the, the, the level of develop the level of uh, top line revenue that you have. It, it varies by half percent increments from a half a percent, I think up to four and a half percent. Mm -hmm. But if you have if you have a hundred million or a, a billion dollar business, mm -hmm. do the math. It's free R and D. Mm -hmm. Now, what we're trying to do is frankly what we're trying to do with companies is First, prove ourselves, build confidence um, in, in our part, in our, in our, you know, with our customer base in the U.S. and Europe. Then, and this is not necessarily, you know, in the in the process of your thinking. But then, if you want to sell in Brazil, if you generate so much in revenue in Brazil, you can take X percent of that revenue, count the quantity the government to subsidize X percent to be plowed back in R and D, free R and D for you. So what basically that does, Brazil is the fifth largest telecommunications economy in the world, behind you know, uh, U.S., Japan, China, and Germany, mm -hmm. and then there's Brazil. Fifth largest, and that's measured by fixed mobile and uh, and uh, wireline, wireless. Okay. The reason I bring that up is because you know, of course, we see in India a lot of companies are going to India, not just because the wave is low, but because there's a huge opportunity in telecom. Well, there's a huge opportunity to telecom in Brazil as well. So companies that we're dealing with want to do business in Brazil, you know, sell products in Brazil, and they generate revenue, in foreign trade gross receipts or, or whatever you want to call it, subpart income, things like that. Mm -hmm. They they can generate, we can help them build bridges to service providers in Brazil. We can do the development in Brazil. And furthermore, X percent will come back in the form of PPB Slash informatics block, and that actually is paid as a significant. Well, so in other words, your customers can benefit from the informatics block, not just you. You can tap well through if they have revenues that they can offset their buying. Okay. I mean, it certainly, certainly helps our customers, certainly helps us increase in business, buying the business, and we can certainly tap cost savings on our customers as well. Yeah, FYI, I mean, when I was working for Canada, they do something similar. Where I forget exactly what the percentages were, but you know, up to I think it was ten or twenty percent of your R and D would have, in effect, be rebated as income tax credit, yeah. which results in free R and D. We we are petitioning various forms of government. We're working with the uh, American Chamber of Commerce, uh, various other entities. Right now, we're trying to execute on our contracts and build business, not trying to play the political. But it's so important because I, I lived in for a short period of time in, in Taiwan and areas where they have tech holidays, ten year tech holidays. You know, you, you go into the science based industrial park and set up, you don't have to pay corporate taxes for ten years. Brazil doesn't get it yet in terms of that respect. Mm -hmm. But they do get it in terms of understanding they have to kick back a little bit into R and D if people are gonna try to sell in Brazil. It's, it's a win-win situation for any multinational outside of Brazil. It's a win-win situation for, you know, the Brazilian economy, employment, things like that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I think we already touched on it, but how are your resources better in Brazil than those offered in India, Eastern Europe, China, and so on? I would say specific to, again, specific to Dyson Labs. Mm -hmm. um, 
the target market, the niche that we're going after, the telecoms and the five-minute reliability, we're clearly better because we've done a lot of that stuff over the last 10, 15 years. Um, again, we're not an IPO. Um, we're not an IPO. information. You know, we're not the IPO stuff. We're not the BPO stuff. We're not call centers. And, and because we, we cut our teeth on, you know, the wireline, wireless, the core infrastructure stuff, that clearly, from a leadership team and from the actual, you know, growth, leads, software designers and leaders doing it, we're, we're, we feel we're, we're clearly a, a cut above. We know how to design and engineer a lot of the U.S. NGN protocols, legacy protocols, all the, all the necessary signaling variants that we need to, you know, to, to integrate into switching platforms for the wireless wireline. So we, we think we have something. I guess from my perspective, I'd be surprised if you have many external customers, but your biggest competition may be internal R&D things within Lucent, Ericsson, yeah. and so on and so on. And then it becomes a resources issue simply because they're much bigger, and if they want to throw a lot more money at it, they can. Yeah, that's very, very true. Um, although I will say, Lucent, we are not going out and... Uh, Coaching our former employer. Mm-hmm. They have an RDP on this stuff. Many of them have worked for my co founder for many, many years. They're not going to have other one of those Many of the people from, from Motorola and Ericsson and others know him as well. So it, it makes for a nice little interesting ecosystem for um, it. People want to come come forward and we're bringing people on as we ramp up projects. And again, I think it's really, it's not how many PhDs you have, it's not how much experience you have, all those things count. But truly what it is is it's a leadership team that can, that can resonate with the employees, keep the employees happy, and, and deliver for U.S. companies. Uh-huh. Um, you know, you can't bring in people who've never done it, I'm not saying that, but the reality is, is uh, a good leadership team, I'm not even saying me, I'm saying the Brazilians done it. Uh, many, of the, many of these guys know me already because I live on it. Really, really does sort of separate us. There's a pretty neat little thing we have done here. Okay. Um, many of the other outsourcers sell the added productivity of being able to work a second or third shift in the same day. In other words, at the end of a U.S. workday, to be able to pass something to another outsourcing partner, and get finished product back when you come in in the morning. If you work the same work hours, you lose that advantage. How can you compensate for that? Okay, in, a, in an environment where you're cranking out widgets, uh-huh. beautiful thing, it works. Uh-huh. In, in an environment where you're designing and developing software, believe me, it doesn't work. Um, let me give you an example. And I, can, I, I, I lived this example for a good 12 years uh, living in China, living in Japan, living in India, living in Chicago, working for for Lucent. When you have people on the other side of the time, uh, other side of the clock, 12, 14, 15 hours ahead, 15, 15, the wisdom, the conventional thinking is, I'm going to work all day in the neighborhood. I'm going to go home at 5.36. And when I go home, the guys in India are waking up. And they're going to work. And we're going to have 24 hours like this. That's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's great. And instead of getting a project done in a year, you'll get it done in maybe three, four months. The reality is, is 
I'm working with, I'm, I'm the chief technology officer and vice president of engineering in Naperville. We're in Boston, we're in Plano, we're in Fort San Jose. I go home. I'm, I give my wife and kids a kiss. I, you know, maybe go to a baseball game. At 8 o'clock, I get a call from the guy and then they need to understand a little bit. There's not, ambiguity is a requirement thing. Well, what that happens, what happens there, frankly, is and I have bags under my eyes still to this day to prove it. You, you, you endlessly orchestrate and organize conference calls at 10, 11, 12, 5, and 9, 1 o'clock in, in the morning. And they do the same thing to accommodate the different kinds of. You have to vet and, 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 and deliver a carrier grade engineering, software design, hardware design, physical design. You have to understand the requirements. And you have to be able to develop and design those things with no ambiguity in real time. When there's a degree of ambiguity, you have downtime. That downtime is huge, it's costly. So what happens is, is when Mr. Mr. Smith and, and, and Abraville goes home, if he doesn't entertain a question from Delhi or from Beijing or wherever else, that night the people in Delhi or Beijing are literally sitting on their hands all day long because or they're developing something that's not right. That happens, and, and I'm telling you right now, vice presidents of engineering, CTOs, CEOs of companies in the market, and some of our customers are saying, you know what? It's not working. It really isn't working. And it's killing me. It's absolutely killing me. Because I want to go home and find my children. I can't be on campus. But when I get in the morning, I'm ready to work. These guys are going on the other side of the world. But I'm keeping them up late at night because they're hard workers, they're smart people, but they're, now they're tired the next day. So it's actually coming from us, in some cases, in a world where you're manufacturing ingredients and, and, and you've worked together a long time and the chemistry is right and they understand the source code and there's no churns, high retention, employees aren't leaving, then it works like a school slash. But it takes time. The, the hour, two hour, three hour time goes swing is, is phenomenal. And it, it, it allows U.S. companies to deal with us in real time. Right now, it's 2 o'clock. It's 4 o'clock into the, the 5 o'clock. If I'm an engineer and there's some kind of signaling protocol that, you know, that we don't understand down as well, guess what? The engineers are available in Boston and, and, and San Jose is 2 hours behind, so it's only 12 o'clock. You can get things done. Uh, and from a personal travel perspective, sure. I mean, I just found going to Brazil was a heck of a lot easier than flying east to Europe or west to, to Asia, at least on my body. In our, in our cost algorithm, where we get, where we get, while we may be 30, 40% more expensive on a per headcount basis than India, I, 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 I show my customers that the, the physical drain of transiting from, going from Chicago to Heathrow, Heathrow down to Delhi, Delhi into Hyderabad, getting there, you know, 21 hours later, plus 12 and a half times on difference, it's 30 to 35 hours a day and a half. It beats you up pretty bad. And you need productivity, and on the way back, it takes you four or five days to recover. Flying on top to Brazil at night, come home at night, it, it works. Mm-hmm. Okay, now moving into a couple other things. Uh, the Real or Hiao has Real. been stable lately. How can you? Maintain that it's going to stay stable in the foreseeable future. You know what? Um, in fact, we we can. 
I can't control foreign exchange. We look at I look at it every day. The reality is in the last year it, it's actually um, gain value against the dollar to the tune of about fifteen percent. So it, in fact it hasn't been quite stable. If I had this interview with you a year ago it would have been at about three. Mm -hmm. Today's at about two point four, so it's lost about you know, you know, uh, let's say twenty percent, fifteen, twenty percent. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it drives right to our bottom line. We can't control it. The only thing we can do when we get a critical mass that, that we'll, we will eventually get to is start uh, hedging and buying currency options to, to manage that. Right now, it doesn't make sense. But for all intents and purposes, over the last 10 years, it has been a very you know, stable uh, currency. There's been some blips, mm -hmm. just like anything else, but the, the euro is. is and the euro is certainly different, and the pound is like incredible. The yen at one point is very volatile and reasonably stable lately. So the reality is all flight of capital, uh, supply and demand. We can't control it, but we can manage how we operate our business. And so now, a year ago, with a Brazilian engineer, 30% the cost of a U.S. engineer? Yes. Okay. Yes, exactly. And now it's 40%. So if it's gone, Directly for a bottom line, but, but the reality is, is you know, our contracts are in U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. All our contracts are in U.S. dollars, even mm -hmm. our European contracts, mm -hmm. um, because they happen to have an entity in the U.S. And they understand to be have a good, solid R&D partner. They, you know, they have it's got to be a win-win situation. They understand that if the currency is devaluing, our price per unit is a little bit higher to compensate for that. So it's a win-win. You never want a partner that's going to lose. We've ultimately both people lose. It's true, but I mean, you're bearing the risk of the currency fluctuation, yeah. and it sounds like in the last year it's hurt you. It's hurt. Yeah. It's hurt us, but we've managed it. Yeah. Um, now, you mentioned Brazil privatized in 98. How has that affected your business? Um, since most of our, very little of our business has been focused on Brazil itself, customers in Brazil. Really good. But from the point of view of, um, you know, competition mm -hmm. and fostering a, a more competitive environment, which is what privatization does, mm -hmm. we've been able, I mean, there are swifter, smarter, more entrepreneurial people even giving back in terms mm -hmm. of privatization. Furthermore, the example that I used earlier, it was because of privatization that loosely brought the defects. Sorry. It, was, it was because of privatization in 1999, where Lucent bought the VTAC, or in 1998, where Lucent bought the VTAC. And, and that in itself, I mean, it's the whole Dyson Labs, um, one of the liability company, you could say, it resulted because of privatization. There are a lot more companies that probably have the same, uh, same explanation of the effect of privatization. Wow. And that was my assumption. Yeah. I mean, in other words, you, Dyson came about as a result of that. Okay. Um, okay. 
you know, I noticed that there were power problems in Brazil. How do you deal with them? You know what? I, I looked at that. Frankly, um, never have I now learned Champions. Mm -hmm. I've never experienced the power. One thing that's also neat about Brazil, and I don't know if it's even a Jones or the South, the major real estate consultant, if you will, they look at many things from the point of view about outsourcing, mm -hmm. from an infrastructure point of view, roads, buildings, power. Brazil rated extremely high. I mean, mm -hmm. again, not to be pounding on our competition, but when I was in India, every two hours was a 20 minute holiday. Mm -hmm. I've never had, I've been, now I'm sure in the rural areas of Brazil, maybe by the Amazon and other areas, power, power outages happen. I personally never experienced And I guess to give you the context in which I was reading about it, uh, apparently there's been a drought and a lot of Brazil's energy is Hydropower, exactly, and because of the drought and there was simply less water flowing, there's been less electricity provided, so on and so on. And so, given the experience that I'm aware of in India, I don't think there are any similarities. In you know what? Um, no. I haven't been back to Brazil since like March. Mm -hmm. um, it's never none of my partners or anyone who I talk to when I talk on a daily basis never mentioned anything about power. So it really is. As far as campaigns, which is where we're located, it's, it's, not, a, it's not an issue. I really honestly can't speak to uh, examples. I've never personally experienced it, and mm -hmm. yeah. Okay. Um, I've read about the Brazilian Institute of Industrial Property. Have they been helpful yeah. or hurtful for you? They've been helpful. They're in the throes of helping us. They may fund some of our training programs for our customers. So here, here's, a, here's an interesting thing. Um, FINEPI, F-I-N-E-P, uh, is a sort of a consortium, if you will, of, mm -hmm. uh, that, that has done a little in, in the technology industry, not telecommunications, but technology general. They're trying to foster growth and enhance cross-border transactions. So Do you know what FINEPI stands for? I'll get that you. Yeah, I don't know what it stands for. Okay. Um, we, we were part of, uh, we were invited to um, spend time with Finetti. They brought together all 20, 10, 15 different VCs that were interested in, in providing money to build an equity stake in various companies with need business models, need business plans. Um, Finetti, you know, does this. They, they provide all the infrastructure and everything in the you know, the environment to bring these VCs together and, and other CFOs, you know, to mentor companies like ourselves along. Additionally, they bring this other entity along. Um, I can't remember the name of it. Um, IMPI. IMPI. And, and their, their objective is to try to uh, stimulate more growth in Brazil by, by providing the necessary training programs uh, for companies like ourselves. So it's not just training for employees. They, they may even subsidize training for, you know, maybe five or six of our engineers to go to, uh, you know, Richardson, Texas, or to Boston to get pollinated, if you will, or to, to, for the knowledge transfer. Because in the long run, it helps Brazilians because it stimulates 
the economy, it, it, it eradicates any potential unemployment, it, it makes employment greater, gives you more trained people, more, more cross-border transactions. So they have, in fact, done a blessing for us. Um, we talked about the informatics law. Brazil is a member of Mercosur. Mercosur. Has, has that been helpful? No, because that's really a, uh, an agreement between Argentina, Brazil, Uruguay, I think, and Chile. There's four, four Latin Americans. I think I have them right. But the bottom line, if we were doing business, it's like their own mini NAFTA. Mm -hmm. Excuse me. If we were doing business, cross-border transactions with those countries, yes, it would be an issue that would be very positive, but the fact is it's a moot point. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I know Brazil is one of the few countries in the world who has been very reciprocal in dealing with the U.S. from an immigration perspective. In other words, <laughs> we are fingerprinting, taking pictures of immigrants when they come to the United States. Brazil is making Americans do the same thing when they go down there. Has that affected you in any way? And what's the impact of that? And, and I had to chuckle a little bit because the reciprocity is not necessarily one of friendliness. I understand. Yeah. Um, but for all intents and purposes, as far as any any immigration concerns are, uh, we we help our customers. It, it is a little bit more bureaucratic than most. Mm -hmm. We help our customers when they get to come to Brazil. Game, you know, get the visas. We have the infrastructure set up, excuse me, so we can expedite that process. We we know how to expedite the process when we have to bring our engineers to the U.S. to get new visas. So the point is, is all it really is is a little bit of extra time, a little bit of extra minor headache, but but we get to figure it out. I mean, we, we work with the system. We know all the ins and outs. We're not circumventing anything. We're just We've been there, done that. So that's really a plus. So it's almost like a moot, a moot point mm -hmm. from the point of view of getting a visa in Brazil versus getting one. You have to get one in India. You have to get one in China. Mm -hmm. But there is, there is more bureaucracy involved. Mm -hmm. it, it, you know, the fingerprinting at the airports is just a, you know, damn it, you've done it, I'm going to do it. Well, like that, that thing. It's a game. Now, the president, uh, Lula Silva, you know, they're doing a lot to build bridges, and there's a couple little bad turns here and there, but it hasn't really been successful. I mean, in a way, I'm surprised a lot more countries in the world aren't doing it. In, in many respects, uh, Brazil is ahead of is ahead of the curve when it comes to a lot of those places. In fact, they're the only country in the world that has a completely automated voting voting system. Huh. You know, and, and they can tally up their votes within hours after an election. In fact, the United States is looking into the Brazil electronic voting system to, to emulate with all the redundancy and backup that is necessary. I mean, you, 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 I saw a little bit of a shrug of the ball game when trying to relegate a voting system to technology or deep, deep trouble. Brazil has it figured out. I don't know all the details. It's just, I guess the reason I roll my eyes a little bit is that's kind of amazing just given the level of, of economy in Brazil, because you wouldn't expect a poorer country or, say, second world country to have that system. You'd expect, you know, one of the most developed countries of the world, yeah. Europe, Japan, whatever, would have it down maybe before yeah. Brazil. In many cases, it's really amazing how archaic industrialized economies can be and how advanced some developing or developing economies can be. In genetics, Brazil is head and shoulders above most 
countries in the world, primarily because, you know, a lot of their, a lot of their economy now, not a lot of going on it is agriculture. Mm-hmm. And they, you know, I'm talking about not biogenetics only, but agriculture genetics and, you know, Mm-hmm. You know how to get the most yield per per acre, and what what to do and not to do. I mean, there's, in many cases, countries look the result of those kind of um, you know that type of mentoring and intellectual property and ideas. Interesting. And voting is just one. I believe we're getting very close to your next appointment. I, I guess we could run through quickly. Uh, no, no, fine. Oh, okay. Um, to get to some of the personal things, I know you managed international sales with Lucent. What was different about it? How did you do it? Different from the sort of what I'm doing now? Well, compared to managing a domestic sales force. Oh, okay. Well, you know, obviously culture is everything. Patience is everything. Um, you know, in, in Asia, in Latin America, in Europe, uh, you know, as opposed to the, U- the U.S., the sales cycles can be a lot longer in those countries because, you know, the culture is, is, hey, you know, tomorrow's fine, the day after tomorrow's fine. It's not just saying the negative about those economies. You know, can you excuse me one second? Sure. I got to go to the other thing. I'm sorry. No problem. Hey, Mr. Moran? Ed? Um, I can't hear you, so I will get back down. I'll be done in about 20 minutes, but I will call you. I'm sorry. This guy. Anyway, um, from the point of view of selling, uh, first of all, let me say Japan. I live in Japan. I wish I would have started my career in Japan. They are the most fastidious, most demanding customers in the world. Uh-huh. They they want you to get it right before you make a sale. And it's a wonderful way to learn about the corporation you're working with you know, or for, like AT&T or other company. But more importantly, it makes you a better a better businessman, better better salesperson. Clearly, it's very rigorous, very long, long uh, sales cycle. Uh, pretty much the same thing in Asia, and I'm sorry, in all of the rest of Asia, and Latin America, and in Europe. I guess the key thing is, is us Americans may be a little bit more impatient with respect to wanting to ring the cash register. Uh-huh. You know, ching to ching, let's get it done tomorrow, let's go call them the effort. A long drawn, more of a long drawn out process. I, I don't care if it's some sophisticated network here in telecommunications or or something else. It's just a different mindset, and, and patience is very key. Well, I guess in that regard, have you ever had Americans who are impatient not be patient with you as the international sales manager? In other words, has that patience created problems in reporting to other American managers? Yeah, I mean. I can't think of any, you know, the reality is, of the 20 years I was with Lucent, you know, like I said, 16, 17 were international, mm-hmm. very small, back in like 80, 81, 82, 83. I really was in a product management role, finance role, and I didn't deal much in terms of selling to U.S. customers at that time. Now, obviously, I still had a network as a result. Because telecom is extremely... Um, Successful to a degree. I mean, why <laughs> France Telecom, Bell Labs, and Telefonica, and Deutsche Telecom, and Vodafone, all in one sense or another have been part of 
you get you get it off. I mean, it's just folks from Chicago, Boston, and all that. Um, but you know, most of it was in, in finance and, and econometric modeling and all that kind of stuff. So it, was, it wasn't really per se international courses. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think that's what you were referring to. Yeah, it was just you know good nuts and bolts. Uh, you know, marketing and finance and you know, management and stuff. It was an executive program. It wasn't a, it wasn't a lengthy an MBA program. And part of the reason I asked is I went to a competitor and I did a comparison in three columns in September comparing GSB, Kellogg, DePaul, Loyola, and then the two other big international programs, University of South Carolina and Thunderbird. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, Wharton obviously is a quality school, it's just, it's much smaller. Yeah, it's, you know, so, it is, I mean, University of Pennsylvania, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's an Ivy League school, small student body, uh, um, I got, frankly, I got to watch out of it because, maybe more so because, you know, it does have a, a, a name to it. Sure. I mean, it was a great learning experience. Uh, Thunderbird, I took a couple courses there. That was really neat, too. I mean, it, that, they had some... That is clearly more of an international school, Thunderbird. I mean, it, I think you... I'm going to quote you on that. <laughs> well, well, that's okay. Um, I mean, I think you have to speak multiple languages. You have to have uh, internships overseas. And at that time, you know, I, I was working for the uh, it was offered an opportunity to take a three or four class there and uh, it's different, it's truly an international school. It's still like that. Well, exactly. And it, but it's just, if you look at a lot of MBA programs these days, many of them are claiming to be international. But if you look at the breadth and depth and scope of the program, nobody still compares to Thunderbird. I agree. And so... Um, People still don't understand that, though. I agree. Their DNA is international. Well, exactly. Um, Now, you've lived in a number of different places. What different languages do you speak? What? I speak nothing other than English fluently. I I can manage uh, Portuguese quite well. Uh Um, In a a, a meeting, I would never present in any world language. Mm-hmm. As far as all the general honorifics, hello, goodbye, how you doing, where's this, where's that, Japanese, do it in uh, Portuguese as well. Mm-hmm. Um, India was never an issue. I mean, Brazil was never Frankly, you don't really have to speak uh, the local languages. Very few times that then you had to get around, like, mm-hmm. you know, Thailand, certainly mainly China, you know. You get to have an interpreter by your side all the time. Mm-hmm. In any business meetings, uh, regardless if I was fluent in Japanese, which I am not, mm-hmm. you still had to have a Japanese translator picked up by the customer because they wanted to make sure there was no, there was no ambiguity in the, in the communication pipeline. Mm-hmm. But to answer your question directly, I have a lot of fun with all the languages I speak none of them. And I get myself in trouble if I try. Well, okay. <laughs> Has that helped or hurt you in your business relationships throughout the world? It, in, a, in a very serious way, it's, it's helped. Uh-huh. Um, because, um, you know, 
in some cases it hasn't been a real issue at all, but it's, it's helped in some cases because you can get yourself into trouble with different tones and cases and and like some of these are really tonal. Chinese Chinese Japanese and if you if you don't if you're not in you know born bred and raised there and you learn Chinese Mandarin or Cantonese or Japanese, you still are not gonna speak it like a born bred and raised person and you can you can really twist some messages just by bad tones. Um in, in, in Portuguese is a, is a pretty tough language to learn. You can you can do the same thing because in many cases it's comparable to uh, Spanish, mm-hmm. but in many cases it's different. So the fact that I'm not fluent, mm-hmm. um, in most cases never needed an interpreter, it sort of helped me because I wasn't able to back myself up against the wall and you know say something shooting That's the reality. Uh, um, on a lighter note. Um, I have thought I was a little bit, you know, taking a bold step and getting myself into, into some trouble, not in a real, not in a real literal sense, but just a, a lack of, you know, he basically just said this, but I think he actually did well. So, uh, but, you know, I, the thing is, is you really have to be integrated into a, a culture and, and, you know, like Brazil or wherever you're living for a long period of time, being there even a year or two, yeah, you can learn a lot, but not enough to just be learning. And moving yeah. around so much, I've never had the opportunity. That's just a neat experience as well. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Alright. Now, you've lived in Brazil, Japan, India, Taiwan, India. I didn't live in Taiwan or Indonesia, I saw that. Uh-huh. I lived in Brazil for two, 25 months, I lived in Japan almost three years, and I lived in India for about two years. Mm-hmm. Okay. I, I've been in every, with the exception of Myanmar, mm-hmm. uh, I don't think there's a country in Cambodia that I haven't been into in Asia from the point of view of meeting with customers and being there many, 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 many weeks at a time. Back to Chicago and back. So I, at one point, and I'm not so proud of this, I was the number two guy with the most miles flown in the United <laughs> that basically tells me that I've been living way, way, I mean, spending way too much time in the air and not with my family. Yeah, that's and I'm more personal about, you know, I have a 13-year-old daughter and an 11-year-old daughter, mm-hmm. and this this new second chapter, Beyond Losing, has been so somewhat of an epiphany for me because it's allowed me to run a business, have a lot of fun, and yet see my kids grow up because, frankly, Having a little kid tug at your your pant leg when you know stepping into a, a cab waiting to go to the airport is not a lot of fun. So from that respect, it's been great. Okay, so were your kids with you when you were living abroad at all? In in India, I'm sorry, in uh, in Brazil. Mm-hmm. How? And what did they think of that? Oh, it's great. They can't wait to go back. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's 365 days like this. Did they pick up any the language or very very little? But you know they still technically. You know, when they uh, when my partner comes in town and stuff, they try a little bit of Portuguese on them, um, and it's, it works pretty interesting. I mean, it's just uh, they, they were um, certainly smaller, um, but never in Japan, never never in India. It's just it's just what happened. Like was I, I would be there for seven, eight, nine weeks at a shop. Sometimes I come home sooner, sometimes longer, but I was given the opportunity to come home for a week or so and 
Mm -hmm. uh, so in those particular markets, I was not an expatriate. Mm -hmm. okay. In a little sense, mm -hmm. but I, I lived there. I mean, I had an apartment, and you know, they just about everything you do as an expatriate deal. Mm -hmm. So you didn't have to violate your, your visa terms and things like that. Yeah, that was a big thing, especially in China. Um, you can only be there so so long before they look at you, and you couldn't, you know, you couldn't immigrate back into the states. You had some problems, and I'm on my third my third passport. Mm -hmm. Some of them have, you know, extension now. <laughs> you know, so, if that need, that's great. You know, mm -hmm. But it's not necessarily a way to, 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 to raise a family. You know. But it's good experience. A couple of quick things. Um, is there anything notable or remarkable about each of the countries you've lived telecom markets? In other words, you know, just living and working there, is there anything that you've picked up that you think would be important for people to know about the telecom system in Brazil, Japan, yeah. India? First and foremost, they all demand excellence. Uh -huh. Absolutely. Um, people who run these networks in any and all economies are very smart, hardworking people, so there's no difference there. Uh -huh. I would go back to what I said when we first started talking. What, what's different is it about the tone and cadence and the pace of the way you work and the work you deliver is what the end users, all about the end users. It's what the end users desire in the telecommunications system. So just to give you an idea, in India, frankly, there's about 2% penetration. Dial tone is not a commodity. You know, to get dial tone, there's a lot of work behind the equation where that obviously not the case in, in Japan and some other markets. Um, and but wireline dial Wireline. Wireline. That's right. And, and frankly though, you know, wireless phones are more, you know, more and more penetration obviously globally, but it's still not at the sweet spot in terms of affordability. And as far as I'm concerned, even in the United States, certainly not in India, you know, in a lot of other areas. Mm -hmm. But as far as, you know, congruency, Excellence is demanded in all these markets. Value for money is absolutely demanded in all these markets. But the, at the end of the day, it's the users, the customers, the people like me and you in these economies that really dictate the ebb and flow of, uh, of what's delivered. And mm -hmm. U.S. vendors who want to compete in those markets need to listen. And they, and they do. They need to listen. You know, you can't serve a, uh, you know, a 10 course meal when they only want, you know, one portion. They can't afford it. Uh, they don't need it. Mm -hmm. In some cases, we want to we want to deliver a small subset, and they want everything. The Japanese are notorious. They need it. They need it because they're they're really adaptive. They're, they're quick consumers, and then they're on to the next uh, the next curve of the technology stuff. Mm -hmm. And is there anything that sticks out in terms of the business culture in each of the countries where you live? In terms of the business culture. Um, you know, I guess I would just say in the U.S., uh, we, we run our business on a quarterly basis for shareholder uh, purposes, and sometimes I think that it's gotten many, many companies into trouble. In Japan, Japan, believe it or not, if, you, if you've never seen a 100-year business plan, uh, you will see it in Japan. Japan actually does one 100-year business plan, right? 
think, uh, you know, when you say, yes, a little bit bizarre, you know, can, well, the point is, is that's, that's, you know, and this is now thousands and thousands of years, that's the thinking. They, they just, you know, while well, they may, you know, strategize and, and use tactics for the next five, ten years, there are, a lot of all the economies are, our countries are a lot, you know, they're, they're looking downstream, where, in the U.S., frankly, the economy, the, the mindset, the shareholders, driven a lot by Wall Street, is earnings per share, stock valuation. That's not so true everywhere else. Uh, that's the biggest thing, I think. Um, and I can't, there are other minor nuances here and there, but from the present purposes, that's, uh, you know, that's no, I mean, uh, I understand and agree. I mean, having lived and worked in Germany, I know they've got five- and ten-year plans, but the difference is they stick to them. You know, they yeah. don't change on a quarterly or annual basis like they do here. Right. And, but it's just a hundred years. <laughs> it's just, no, it's it's bizarre. Bizarre. it is really bizarre. It's just, uh, yeah. And, and also, I think just in, just in general, the social culture is, the, the social climate culture really is a lot
Well, you're going to be hearing more and more about Brazil. You have to look, look right now and you have to search and hunt to think about Brazil, where it's going to become more, more prevalent. I'm very, very convinced because it's a neat, neat environment, the international place is a neat environment. I just chose Brazil because it's uh, perhaps neater than most. I mean, it's interesting because from my perspective, if you look at natural resources, potential, size and scope potential, I mean, in many ways, Brazil is a mirror image of the United States just below the equator. And it's just what I've heard, though, is Brazil is the country with the greatest potential, and it always will be. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing that holds it. Yeah, and believe me. I mean, we've been so I hear the same thing about, about, you know, potential is great, but if you can't convert it, it means nothing. And I would say the other funny thing that we have, uh, I'm going with some of our customers and our prospects, are in this whole world of offshoring, if you think about it, you can drive to Brazil, it's onshore. And, and, you know, there are no, there are no other than a border, there are no waters in between us, and, and you know, while it's a ten-hour flight and a couple thousand miles away, we always position it as your neighbors to the south, and we, you know, we really are. It's, it, it's a really easy uh, economy group of people, you know, to deal with, and the proximity speaks volumes. So we actually say easy shore, or onshore, or near shore, but we're not offshore. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So it's a neat way to Okay, great. Thank you.